Hello, everyone, and welcome to Small Talk, a podcast where we explore the Boston Children's Hospital community through conversation. My name is Denise Downey, and I'm the Nursing Professional Development Specialist from the Emergency Department. And along with me today are my co-hosts, Kate Donovan and Teresa Shannon. And we are so fortunate today to have our special guest, Anne-Marie Faimi, who is the nurse practitioner in the Department of Surgery in the Adolescent Bariatric Surgery Program. Anne-Marie, welcome, and thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Awesome. I'm wondering if you can just tell us a little bit about yourself, a little bit about your background, and maybe your role as nurse practitioner in the bariatric program. Sure. My name is Anne-Marie Fiamme. I, as some people would say, am a company girl at Boston Children's. I started as a graduate nurse in 1990 and actually was a staff nurse until about nine years ago when I decided to go back and get my master's degree and be a nurse practitioner. So I've been a nurse practitioner for nine years. I worked various jobs at Children's as a medical nurse, mostly inpatient and outpatient. Um, This is my first job as a nurse practitioner. When I started, the job was 16 hours and I was the only nursing person on the team, still am. Um, but the the role has grown substantially, and I'm now full time coordinator of the program and a provider in clinic, as I've always been. So, as a nurse practitioner in this role, can you tell us a little bit more about your job? I coordinate the program. We are accredited by the American College of Surgeons. And so every three years we have this accreditation process. So um, because of that, I have a, a list of tasks and operations that we need to do in order to keep current with our accreditation. So that's part of my role is making sure that all of our accreditation paperwork is fulfilled. But I'm also a provider in clinic, meaning anytime that we have either an in-person or virtual clinic, I am one of the medical providers. Um, I'm both GI and surgery. It's kind of a unique position. So most of my time, I see patients as a gastroenterology provider. This is a multidisciplinary clinic. Uh, We have GI, surgery, nutrition, social work, psychology, and we have an endocrine provider. So I function as a GI provider most days. And then occasionally in the absence of the surgeon, I will be a surgical provider to do post-op visits in his absence. I kind of wear two hats in the clinic. So I see patients, but I also uh, do a lot of nursing care as well. I do all of the pre-op teaching. We round on the patients or I round on the patients as the medical provider member of the team while they're inpatient after their surgery. I do all the post-op teaching along with the nurses on the floor and, you know, lots of um, post-op education as well as post-op visits. I also coordinate, you know, all the labs in the clinic. I keep up to date all of our internal documentation as far as the net learnings that go out to different staff at the hospital, all of the family education sheets, the power plans. That's pretty much all of my domain. I'm the only full-time provider in our clinic. We're a great team, but all of us, except for me, have different roles in the hospital. The psychologist has a different patients, non-bariatric that he sees. Dietitians work in different places. Everybody has different roles. Um, so I'm kind of the um, the one consistent person. So a lot of that mm-hmm. is uh, under my umbrella. So you definitely wear a lot of hats, yeah. no doubt. You're a busy person. Mm-hmm. Can you just help our listeners understand what we mean by bariatric surgery? So bariatric surgery is also called weight loss surgery. And at Boston Children's, we do two procedures. One is a Roux-en-Y gastric bypass. 
and the other is a vertical sleeve gastrectomy. And these are done on um, severely obese patients. Our criteria for bariatric surgery evaluation is anyone with a BMI over 40. We go by the adult kind of criteria because most of the kids we deal with are, all of the kids we deal with are teenagers. So we do go by mostly adult profiles, but there are um, pediatric cutoffs for what is severely obese. It's like uh, 120 to 140% of the 95th percentile in BMI. So anybody with a BMI over 40 is eligible for evaluation. Those with a BMI of 35 to 39 uh, need to have a severe comorbidity of obesity, meaning they need to have type 2 diabetes or um, severe obstructive sleep apnea requiring CPAP. Maybe they have very bad fatty liver disease or pseudotumor cerebri, things like that. But I would say the majority of our patients have a BMI of 40 and above. And when you say BMI, what does that stand for? And how does one figure out their own BMI? The BMI is a body mass index. It's a calculation that has to, you know, using your height and your weight, because of course, someone with a height of six feet who weighs 210 pounds would not necessarily be qualified as um, severely obese, but somebody who is five feet with a weight of 210 pounds would definitely be qualified as obese. And so there's a lot of talk about BMI and how useful it is because people with more muscle mass tend to have um, higher BMIs because muscle weighs more than fat. But in general, all of the patients we see have struggled with obesity and their BMI is more likely to be a true depiction of their obesity rather than a high BMI because of muscle. Yeah, Marie, I'm curious about the age of the patients that uh, qualify. Our crediting body, you know, goes by the World Health Organization definition of an adolescent, which is actually 10 to 19. Um, we tend to, we don't have a hard and fast criteria, but I will say like we have evaluated 11 year olds and 12 year olds and the youngest person we've done is 14. So I think if a provider out there is wondering, they should certainly err on the side of sending for evaluation. A lot of these children, if they are, severely obese at 10 years old will likely need bariatric surgery at some point in the future. You know, it's a it's a team decision. And oftentimes we evaluate these patients, but we may have them do some med- medical uh, weight loss first or actually start them on um, some of the weight loss medications first before surgery. Surgery is a it's a big undertaking and you can only do it once in your life. So we um, really strive to make sure that the patient is together with their parents, able to demonstrate that they'll be able to keep this weight off for the next 75 years. And you mentioned that surgery is not always the first go-to. Can you describe a patient's journey really from the initial consult and what they have to go through in order to make it to that day of surgery? We get our patients from all different areas. A lot come from within children's, the OWL program, the STEP program, which is for eating disorders. We are sent patients from endocrine, from cardiology, from orthopedics, from uh, primary care, outside primary care. And then we have a lot of patients that find us on the internet. And so a patient makes contact with our office. Either they fill in an online form or they call our office. 
We do an intake sheet and then they get a call from me, like a screening call just to see if if they qualify. Some people are, you know, especially those that are self-referred, uh, have a very low BMI and weren't aware of the criteria. So some of those patients need to be vetted before they're brought in for the first step of the intake. So I usually go over their weight, their past medical history, what comorbidities they have, and what they've tried before. It used to be one of our criteria that they need to have done some form of medically supervised weight loss before. And in fact, we would turn them away if they hadn't. So we would, if they've never seen a dietitian or never done like a, a Weight Watchers or a medically based weight loss attempt, not just diets at home, but like a, a weight loss attempt supervised by a dietitian or a physician, we would turn them away. Now, you know, again, based on the recommendations from our accrediting body, they've really seen that um, it doesn't make a, a lot of difference uh, in terms of the outcomes for bariatric surgery if they've done any medically supervised weight loss. In our opinion, it does add uh, a bit to the, the amount of education that these patients need, but it's not a rule that they need to come in having done any sort of medically supervised weight loss. But we do like to know what they've tried. Have they been on medication? Have they worked with a dietitian before? Have they ever been able to, to lose weight in the past? We also screen them for disordered eating, like a, just a cursory uh, screening. And what we're looking for is binge eating disorder, which is, it's not a contraindication, but it does present a special set of circumstances that we uh, take the patient uh, under some different provision. And those patients take longer to get through our program. So once they're screened, and I, I feel as though that they'd make a good candidate, and I do some education on the phone with the family um, about how long the program takes, what you know, what kind of a commitment it is, that kind of thing. We ask them to come to a mandatory information session, and that is held um, virtually over Zoom, but it's live. So the surgeon presents our program, he he talks about the benefits of weight loss surgery and why it, why it works, and presents the different procedures that we do. And then uh, he takes questions. So then after that, the patient is is left to make a decision whether or not they want to pursue the next step of the intake. Most everyone after the info session call for the next step. And the next step is a psychological assessment. And that is done usually virtually, um, but our out-of-state, out-of-country patients need to be seen in person. And our psychologist goes through a battery of tests to assess for anxiety, depression, disordered eating, suicidality, you know, lots of questions about social determinants of health, family history of any psych problems or um, obesity, weight loss surgery, and also assesses what they know about weight loss surgery. Um, have they done any research on their own? Are they coming into this being coerced by, you know, maybe a family member? Is it the child's decision? Is it the parent's decision? Does the child know exactly what they're being evaluated for? And then he makes, you know, his recommendations. Uh, the next step after that is they come in to meet the whole team. And that is when they meet the surgeon, one of the medical providers, a dietitian, social worker, and we decide whether or not we feel like they'd be a good candidate. And of course, the patient and family at that point has really gotten a taste about how intense this program is. They'll decide whether or not they feel like it's for them. Um, what we look for in a good candidate is somebody who is coming at this willingly and, and of their own accord, um, who's interested in making the changes necessary for bariatric surgery, 
who has no alcohol or drug addictions, uh, somebody who doesn't have a medical reason for their weight, meaning like, are they on some antidepressants or antipsychotics that are making them gain weight, that kind of thing. And so once we accept them, they're seen monthly. And we tell patients that it takes at least six months to be able to qualify for surgery. In truth, I usually tell them it's more like nine to 12 During the six months, they have six monthly visits, and that's usually with a medical provider, a social worker, and a dietitian. They get goals to work on, and all the goals are centered around weight loss. There might be lifestyle goals, sleep hygiene, um, mindful eating, diet changes, exercise, but they're all designed around what the patient has told us maybe might be their pain points in terms of their diet and nutrition, and they're designed to make the patient lose weight. We also uh, lately have been heavily using weight loss medications in an effort to try to get the patient to lose some weight prior to surgery. We don't make it mandatory, but they have to keep stable or uh, lose weight. Certainly if they're on an upward trajectory, you know, we have to reevaluate whether or not, you know, it's a right time for them to be in the program. Because as I said, there's really only one chance to have weight loss surgery and you want to make it the best effort possible. During the six months or eight or 12 months that we see them, we have to get clearance from cardiology. Um, They usually have an echo and an EKG and an exam by a cardiologist who is looking for left ventricular hypertrophy, hypertension, hyperlipidemia. And then everyone gets screened with some baseline labs, some stool uh, labs. And then we also have them all seen in sleep clinic to rule out obstructive sleep apnea. A lot of our kids do have obstructive sleep apnea. And if they are started on CPAP, or APAP, um, they need to be compliant with that for about three months before uh, we can safely give them elective anesthesia. That's quite an incredible journey, quite a long process. Right. How many kids actually make it through that entire process without dropping out? Yeah. We do about two surgeries a month. We we only have two slots a month and we're able to fill them most months. It is very much a moving target in terms of surgery. We usually know a month or six weeks ahead of time if a patient is ready for surgery. Like we have a checklist that we designed during a QI project that we had that's like an inter-team checklist to make sure that every team member is comfortable and on board with this patient having surgery. And the surgeon is very good in saying that if one team member has any reservation that this patient is not ready for surgery, then that stops the whole line. We do use that checklist a lot. A lot of it is about how much nutrition education do they have? Do they know, you know, the difference? Like, why do we want them to be, to have a protein rich diet? And what do carbs do in your body? And, and how can you pick something healthy off of a menu? Do they have stable housing? Do they have stable, you know, food? Do they have a support system? That kind of thing. Mm-hmm. If they do have a history of binge eating, we do require that they need to be binge free for a 12 months before they can have surgery. Because of course, like if you had untreated binge eating disorder and then were to binge after having your stomach made very, very small, it could be catastrophic that you could perforate the pouch. So um, binge eaters, you know, we'll keep them in the program. A lot of times we will refer them to our step program or maybe to Walden to work on the binge eating, but they do need to demonstrate 12 months without binging. So uh, to answer your question, two patients a month, hopefully, sometimes one, occasionally three, usually two patients a month, like 24 a year. But, you know, sometimes, you know, 
patients will come in or something will come up on their medical workup or oftentimes though, like they may come in having a weight gain that we don't feel comfortable, you know, that they haven't been following their program. They haven't been adhering to their goals because our whole desire and goal for these patients is to be able to sustain the weight loss that they will get from the surgery. And it's not fair to put these kids through a big surgery unprepared. You know, there is a certain mm-hmm. level of weight gain, you know, after a kind of the initial loss. But as I said, they'll have to keep it off for their entire lives. So they'll have children and and weight will fluctuate and they need to be able to get back on track. And so we, we're really kind of adamant that if they're not um, adhering to their goals, that they're not ready. Now, I'm wondering too, does insurance cover this? Yes. In the past, like I've been here nine years and in the past we had some issues and some insurance companies require different kinds of documentation. And we've had to, you know, kind of change our approach. Now we're having everybody see the psychologist right before surgery. But in general, I think it's a very widely recognized procedure. So we haven't had uh, problems in years with um, having insurance issues. Amory, could you talk a little bit about the medications that the kids are going on? Yeah, sure. You've probably heard about um, Ozempic in the news uh, so much. So that is a class of medications called GLP-1 agonists, and they mimic the actions of a hormone that is involved with satiety. And so we have been starting to use these medications um, more than some of the ones we had used in the past. In the past, we'd used um, like fentramine, which is like a, a medication used for ADHD, but has been shown to have some benefit with um, appetite suppression. We also use topiramate or a combination of both in a medication called Qsimia. So topiramate and fentramine is called Qsimia. Both those medications have suppression of appetite as one of the side effects. So we've used those in the past, but now with these GLP-1s are actually on formulary and FDA approved for obesity in adolescents 12 and up. It's really helped us to help these patients to lose weight. You know, we've had um, a lot of patients kind of report that it kind of quiets the food noise in their head about thinking about food or, or feeling constantly hungry. A lot of our patients have this constant hunger that, you know, is probably metabolically linked with their hormones. A lot of them have family members who have had bariatric surgery and a long um, history, a family history of obesity. So um, these medications have helped with satiety, portion control. We definitely want to see what kind of effort they could put in to changing some of their habits, getting rid of sugar-sweetened beverages, um, decreasing the amount of refined carbs in their diet, eating three meals a day. A lot of patients come in not eating until 2 or 3 p.m. So we work on those kinds of things first. And then, you know, if they have like a stabilization of their weight or a modest weight loss, we'll definitely, if their insurance covers it, add a medication to try to give them more of a weight loss. The insurance coverage with those medications is difficult. And we have a great team that works on PAs uh, through GI and through endocrine that have been very helpful in getting some of these patients um, meds approved. The endless job of PAs, right? I know. Yeah. It it helps me greatly because I, you know, the providers and all of us were doing our own PAs and it it takes a lot. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And some of these medications are injections. Are the kids complaining about this? 
No, no. I mean, some of them are nervous and they have their moms do it. So I do a Zoom um, and I, I have my demo pens here at my desk and we go over it together. Or if we're in clinic, I use the demo pen. You know, some of them are certainly fearful of doing it themselves, but I haven't had anybody turn down a medication that will help them to lose weight because they're afraid of, of needles. Anne-Marie, do any of the kids need to continue medication post-surgery? Yeah, that's a good question. They have a, about a year of losing weight pretty consistently. So we don't, uh, we, we'll have them stop the medication prior to surgery. And then sometimes we'll start it if they've had a plateau, like maybe after a year out, like, you know, we just saw someone who had gained a little bit of weight and knew where she had you know, what had maybe made her gain this weight, but we are also adding a medication just to kind of get her back in check because she was very anxious about putting her weight back on. Dr. Carmine, our surgeon, is a surgeon primarily at Boston Medical Center. They have a huge bariatric surgery program there and they do hundreds and hundreds of surgeries. And so I think they do a lot more medication post-op with some of the adults. Our program is probably 15 years Olds now, and these medications are have just been approved for adolescents and for weight loss. Formerly, um, a lot of the medications were only, like Ozempic, for example, is really only approved for type two diabetes, um, Manjaro type two diabetes. So, you know, people were still using them off label, but now that some of them are approved for weight loss in adolescents, we've been using them. So, I can anticipate that we'll be using them for weight loss um, for our post-op patients more often. You know. If they're having a hard time with weight gain. Do you guys collaborate with the OWL program at all? Very much so. We um, And the STEP program, which is the adolescent program in adolescent clinic, they take all of our referrals for patients who we discover have eating disorders or we think might have binge eating disorder. We send patients to both OWL and um, STEP, and then they'll also send patients to us who are expressing a desire for bariatric surgery. Um, the patients we send to OWL uh, usually are those that don't qualify for surgery just yet or those who, so they don't qualify, their their BMI is too low. And if a patient really feels as though they would rather just stay on medication or they have some anxiety around surgery and it's becoming apparent that they probably do not want surgery, we'll have them followed in OWL because we, we typically try to see only surgical patients just because our next new appointment is December for a new patient. So if his goal is not to have surgery, we'll usually try to have somebody else manage him. Emory, I've heard of the OWL program, but I, I wasn't aware of the STEP program. For our listeners who may not be as familiar with Boston Children's, could you explain each of those programs? So the STEP program, uh, yeah, I hope I get this right. My apologies to STEP if I... if. <laughs> If I don't, but it's it's a program run by Dr. Tracy Richmond in the Adolescent Medicine Clinic. And my understanding is that STEP is for patients who with eating disorders, particularly in our clinic, um, those with binge eating disorder. She also runs the program for anorexia and all, you know, under the umbrella of all eating disorders. I don't know if that's also called STEP, but eating disorders in general are managed by adolescent clinic. So they work primarily on the psychological reasons for the binge eating. You know, they aren't as concerned with promoting weight loss, um, but more, you know, kind of exploring what is causing the binging, what's behind it and uh, trying to get those patients to 
curb their binging and hopefully uh, arrest the binging so that they can put some time together and come back to us uh, so that they can have their surgery. The OWL Clinic is Optimal Wellness for Life. It's been at Children's for many years. It's a program in the Endocrine Clinic, and it's a wonderful program for patients of all ages, like I think preschool and up, who are overweight. I don't think that they have a set criteria. Like I think anybody with overweight or obesity or severe obesity is able to be seen in the OWL Clinic, also a multidisciplinary clinic with psychology and medicine and uh, nutrition of course, and social work. And they they are more of a medical weight loss clinic, and they are also using a lot of our injectable and oral weight loss medications as well. Tell us a little bit about the surgery. I understood at one point it was endoscopic. Is this still an endoscopic procedure? Yeah, it, it's laparoscopic. So the Roux-en-Y gastric bypass, it was the gold standard. So both of them are done laparoscopically, meaning there's about five incisions in the abdomen. Dr. Carmine goes in with some scopes and his tools. He's standing and looking at a camera. It used to be open. It's not open anymore. It's done laparoscopically. And so the Roux-en-Y gastric bypass, it was the gold standard for many years for weight loss surgery. That and the vertical sleeve gastrectomy are the only two bariatric surgeries approved for children and adolescents. The vertical sleeve gastrectomy has become more popular in recent years because what they found is in the adult population of like super obese, very ill, affected five, 600 pound patients, um, they found that they were too ill to undergo the Roux-en-Y gastric bypass because it's a longer procedure, a little bit more involved. So what they were doing was a vertical sleeve gastrectomy, also laparoscopically, as a first stage procedure. Um, just to kind of get them um, some weight loss so that they can lose weight and have the Roux and Y gastric bypass in a few months. What they found is these people um, actually lost nearly as much weight as with the Roux and Y gastric bypass. So that became a popular surgery because people feel as though it is less invasive. It's, it's a simpler procedure. Um, they have the same kind of side effect profile and complication profile, but it's a, it is a simpler procedure. What we found is we were doing a lot of vertical sleeve gastrectomies where the surgeon will go and basically cut off the antrum part of the stomach, and then that part gets discarded. Um, so you're left with like a banana shape of a stomach. What we found is the patients, they have fairly good weight loss, not as well as the Roux-en-Y gastric bypass, but they have a lot of heartburn afterwards. So we've had some patients have to come back in and have a revision. And so a lot of our patients will elect if they have a lot of weight to lose for the Roux-en-Y gastric bypass. It doesn't have that side effect of heartburn. And also a gastric bypass will also, in more than 80% of the cases, reverse type 2 diabetes within the first week. Like gastric bands and things like that. And we don't do any of that on, on kids. On kids. So- this whole procedure is so complex. I'm wondering when you say a patient has gone through bariatric surgery successfully, how do you define success in these patients? Success to us is is successfully getting through our program and having surgery. The surgery works, you know, they will lose a lot of weight. Their comorbidities will reverse, their dyslipidemia, type 2 diabetes, sleep apnea. So their quality of life is much better. They, yeah, their PCOS, their irregular periods, their joint pain, the, you know, so much better 
but it takes some maintenance and education to in order to maintain this weight loss. It's a group effort. And once you have bariatric surgery, you need to be followed by a bariatric surgery center for life. And um, I would say the biggest frustration in my role is those patients that might come for their six-month follow-up, and then we have a very hard time getting them back because they feel better, they look better, they're more active, and then they kind of forget that they're forever changed on the inside. Some don't take their vitamins and might end up in our emergency room with really bad anemia or Worse. So that is a big part of my role and part of our, our necessary steps with our accreditation is that we need to follow these patients for life or until we can transition them to an adult uh, center. And so I do a lot of certified letters and phone calls uh, to try to track patients down and get them to come in and take care of themselves. Uh, there's a lot of studies that are that you know talk about like maybe provider bias on on referring for bariatric surgery like you know are patients of color referred less often than than white patients so and you you know you can pick up any journal and find out that patients of color um, black and latino patients are more likely to be obese than white and asian patients but white patients are more likely to have bariatric surgery and so that is a huge concern. I would say across the board, different insurers are are covering. It has not been a problem for us to get these procedures covered. What has been a problem is getting these patients through the program. And so I'm um, I just completed um, the nursing science fellowship, and that is I'm still working on the project. We're not even we haven't yet started collecting our data, but my goal is to see if there is some characteristics that make patients more likely to complete the program and have bariatric surgery or not. Is it, you know, social determinants of health? Is it access to food? Is it where you live in your zip code? Is it your ethnicity or race? Is it your insurance? Is it, you know, you have some mental health issues or you have mental health issues in your family? So we're we're looking at all that. I would say most of our patients are black and Latino and a fair amount of those are the ones that have, that get surgery, but I don't know how many are out there that qualify for surgery and are just not being referred. And so that I don't know about, about referrals, but the ones that, that get to us, you know, we are very committed to treating everybody equitably and advocating for these patients, um, whether it's with insurers or families or primary care providers. We also, our dietitians are great about working with what patients have at home. Like we have some patients who have been unhomed and in shelters or on specific um, programs, whether it be food stamps or um, food pantries, things like that. So they will work with whatever the patient has. And as I said, we don't like adult programs, we don't mandate a certain amount of weight loss, like 10% or, you know, 30 pounds. Um, so these patients just have to maintain. So by whatever means possible, we try to um, work with what is available to them in their community kitchen or wherever they're getting their meals and hopefully just getting them educated about what kind of food is best for them and what can produce some weight loss. 
it's a struggle for people who don't have the the resources. We have a two-week pre-op liquid diet. So once somebody's approved for surgery, the very last step is they do uh, about five or six protein shakes a day for two weeks. That is to get some weight off of them, but also to purge the liver of fat. It makes the surgery a little bit easier if the liver isn't as heavy and fatty. And that is a struggle to, you know, for some patients, obviously, to get two weeks worth of protein shakes because, you know, Fair Life, um, if you've ever had the core protein, it's delicious, but expensive. And so our social work department is very helpful in helping to get resources to these kids. Also, during the pandemic, we got a grant from the Department of Surgery and we were able to send to mail um, digital scales uh, like and bariatric scales when needed to our patients because we were seeing them virtually, but they didn't have a scale to weigh themselves on. So we were very grateful that our department was very supportive in helping our patients complete their virtual visits and have a full visit with a weight. I really like that you're doing that for your nursing fellowship. That yeah, is it's a cool awesome. project. Yeah, no kidding. And then it brings me to that movie I saw called Food Incorporated. And my takeaway from that movie was that people can eat all this crap and because it's affordable, which actually it's really not that affordable now. Yeah. Ultimately, they're going to pay for it in the end with all of these medical issues. For so. sure. The food deserts and and all of that, it's it's a challenge and it and it makes these people who are already, you know, at risk, maybe they have a family history of obesity or they're living in a food desert or they have lower socioeconomic status and they can't afford, you know, fresh meats and foods. They're more up. Op- you know, opting for um, processed foods and or fast foods, mm-hmm. it, you know, it just compounds their their issues. And it does make it difficult to keep weight off after surgery. The surgery is very helpful, though. And part of the reason why the Roux-en-Y gastric bypass works so well is there's a component of dumping. You might have heard of dumping syndrome, which is some people think of it as a complication. It's actually part of the plan in that, you know, if you eat something that is high in fat or refined carbs, it goes quickly into your intestine and your intestine will be irritated, filled with water. You'll get, you know, sweaty and abdominal pain, maybe even vomit or have diarrhea. And so that's part of keeping the weight off. A lot of this fast food will cause them to feel really ill. So they tend to gravitate towards more uh, healthier choices, but finances are always difficult to manage. I would say most patients can tell you stories about, most patients can tell you stories about their, you know, we call it peer victimization, like bullying, As I said before, a lot of patients don't eat until the late afternoon. A lot of that is because they don't like to eat in front of people at school. And so they might go sit in the computer lab or, you know, just sit at a cafeteria table and not eat because they feel ashamed or feel as though people are looking at them. Prior to the pandemic, we had a lot of patients on virtual school, like through homeschool companies and things like that, because they just didn't want to be at school anymore because of the teasing. There actually was a study that showed that the quality of life of an obese teenager was as bad or worse than an adolescent going through cancer treatment. That is a great example of how affected these kids are. Our psychological evaluation is really comprehensive, and Dr. Cherry does a great job at determining what the issues are. Most patients need outside psychotherapy if they don't already have it. Um, It is a challenge, as you all know, finding therapists these days for patients. 
And so um, that's always a challenge, but a lot of our patients do have great therapists that help them. I also think if they can be successful in our program, it does give them a little hope, you know, so that they can get through the six or nine or nine months before surgery of putting up with whatever they have to put up with at school, knowing that there's a light at the end of the tunnel. And also they are losing bits of weight and getting lots of encouragement. We see them monthly from us and support from us. So hopefully that is the last leg on their journey at school being being bullied and things. I hope they look at surgery as a light at the end of the tunnel so that they can push through. But, you know, there's a lot of kids out there that have mental health issues that, and they don't stay in our program or they linger for a long time because, you know, something went wrong at home or at school or um, they had an injury and then they just had a big weight weight gain in, in between visits and are with us longer or we sometimes have to redirect them to like medically supervised weight loss if they're really not ready to make the commitment for surgery. And Marie, as an ER nurse, I'm wondering, could you touch on some of the complications that could be dangerous for any of these patients Mm post-op? And from a nursing perspective, what do we do for them? When our patients go home, you know, there's always a risk of bleeding, of leak. Leak meaning from the staple line, they have one of the staple lines opens or things like that. That usually presents as tachycardia low blood pressure, belly pain, or like right shoulder pain. Some patients have some immediate post-op bleeding where um, maybe like a, there was like a little bit of a bleed and they have like a bloody stool. Actually, we just supported them through it and they had a, a scope um, and there was no active bleeding. So once in a while, um, they'll have some um, post-op bleeding. But I would say any bariatric, any patient who has a history of bariatric surgery should be consulted by surgery, like any belly pain, you know, obviously any, if they're freshly post-op, any blood in the vomit or stool um, needs to see surgery. These patients um, also in the immediate post-op time um, are very at risk for dehydration. You know, when you're fresh post-op, it's very hard to keep hydrated because they are feeling very full uh, on a very small amount of liquid. And and we really push inpatient fluids and that we reiterate all the time, their fluid goals. Um, and then sometimes at home, they just don't, you know, keep after it. And then they'll come in uh, with headache sometimes vomiting and like some profound dehydration. We have some guidelines, um, as Denise knows, in the ER for bariatric surgery patients who come in and um, their rehydration is usually significantly more than the ER is used to. Uh, It's somewhere around three or four liters. And so I would say the, the most ER visits we've had is for dehydration, but they're also at risk for, for leaks in the immediate post-op. And then later after surgery, like even months to years later, vitamin deficiencies, profound anemia. We had one patient come in with a B1 deficiency, having neuropathy in her legs. So anybody who has a history of bariatric surgery, that should be one of the biggest kind of red flags. Oh, the other thing is ulcers along the staple line. Our patients after bariatric surgery can never use nicotine or NSAIDs and because they cause um, ulcers, especially with the Roux-en-Y gastric bypass along the staple line. And so we have had some patients come in uh, having forgotten those roles and uh, had some hematemesis and um, pretty big ulcers. So that means no nicotine, they can't be smokers. 
No, no smoking, no vaping, no chewing tobacco. And also we're really strict with um, anybody who has a history of smoking prior to surgery will uh, check their urine to make sure that they haven't smoked in three months because it really is, you know, a big risk to uh, for bleeding. Would that include cannabis as well? No, actually it doesn't. It's just nicotine. So um, although cannabis is, you know, we have a fair amount of patients who who use it, but it is something that increases your appetite. So, you know, we always make them aware that this is not helping your end end goal of having surgery, or if they've had surgery, your goal of keeping it off. So we just make them aware. The other thing we, these patients are at risk for is transferring kind of addictive behavior, such as eating addictions to other things. So like, because they um, have a very small surface area of the stomach and with the renal gastric bypass, the stomach empties into the lower part of the intestine, they get a much more pronounced response from alcohol. So when they drink alcohol, it takes a much smaller amount and it's much quicker to get the effect. And so that, you know, just kind of reinforces the reward system in our brain. And so we always tell them that if they are somebody who is of age and drinking prior that, you know, their alcohol tolerance will change drastically. But also we try to keep them aware that that is a very important feedback loop to recognize and that, you know, sometimes if you might have gone to food to comfort you and that the switch to going to a glass of wine to comfort you is a very small jump. And a lot of these patients, like I had one girl who she had surgery very quickly and it was actually five months, which was too quick. And she admitted it was too quick. She was just a star. She did everything, everything right, very well adjusted, um, and had been chronically ill as a child. So had a lot of knowledge and was savvy about the medical system and very, you know, aware of herself. Anyway, she said the five months in retrospect was too soon because she just, she didn't change her, her relationship with food. She had a hard time because she missed it and she couldn't go to her regular things. You know, it made her feel sick or it, it was too heavy or, or, and she hadn't gotten the coping tools in place so that she, when she felt sad or anxious or whatever, she had different tools to go to rather than food. So that was very good. That was years ago and it was a lot of good feedback for the team. Uh, so since then, we put a more emphasis on, on talking about subjects like that and put a six month time frame in. Going back to the cannabis, just out of curiosity, are they smoking it for recreationally or are they using it for nausea? No, they're smoking it recreationally. I I would say it's most of the patients pre-op. You know, nausea post-op is is usually situational. Well, post-op, fresh post-op, we have a scope patch and, you know, some Zofran and things like that because they definitely have nausea post-op. But um, if they have nausea or vomiting post-op, um, it's usually because they ate too much or they ate too fast. Um, post-op, they really have to chew their food well, like almost to a liquid consistency. They eat and then they will drink like 30 minutes later, but it's really hard to eat and drink at the same time because the stomach um, is just so small. They've got about between two and four ounces to fit in there. And so we do a lot of education about pacing yourself. And, and you know, if school lunch is only 17 minutes, then don't expect to eat the whole lunch in that time because if you rush, you're going to throw up. So if they're vomiting or nauseous, it's usually situational and they ate too fast or they ate the wrong thing. 
Um, but yeah, no, I think a lot of kids are using it and um, more so than nicotine. I mean, I, I think we have a lot more patients uh, smoking or using edibles um, just for relaxation and recreational use. You know, one of the things that I don't think we touched on was the length post-op. How long are they in the hospital and what is the post-op period on average? They're in the hospital for two nights in general, and they have a, a volume uh, goal that they have to hit in order to be discharged. They have to have 20 ounces by like noon that day so that we can ensure that they'll you know, have 60 ounces a day by the time they go home because we really want to prevent them coming in to see Denise in the emergency room and being dehydrated. I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I'm pretty proud of the fact that we re- it's been years since we've had yeah. anybody bounce back for dehydration. Yeah. So they're out of school or work for two weeks. Um, they can't lift. It's just like any laparoscopic, you know, or abdominal surgery, no lifting more than 15 pounds for like eight weeks, no bat, no baths or pools, no contact sports or ab exercises for six or eight weeks, but we want them to be active. We do surgery on a Tuesday. They're out of work or school that week. And then the following week, And then they're back to school and work. And some even, you know, do work from home on that second week. They go home on a stage two bariatric diet. So stage one is immediately post-op and they have like clear sugar-free liquids. So crystal light and water and sugar-free jello. They're on that for like a day or so. And then in the hospital, we change them to a uh, stage two bariatric diet, which is liquid protein. So that's their protein shake again. And then they can have like protein powder in some like pureed soups, or they can have low fat Greek yogurt or cottage cheese. And so they'll do that for two weeks, the protein powder with, you know, different broth or soups, cottage cheese, yogurt, and protein shakes for two weeks. And by then they never want to see a protein shake again. Um, So then after two weeks, they go to stage three, which is soft proteins. That's Scrambled egg, ground beef, ground turkey, deli meat, things like that. They're super happy when it gets to that part. And then we, you know, we emphasize protein because like, because you only have a very small amount of stomach to fill, we want the high value foods to go in. And so in order to enact a good amount of weight loss, you want to have a lots of protein and very little carbs. And a lot of patients do not feel well when they have uh, refined carbs after surgery, pasta, rice, bread, really feels heavy, kind of sticky. Sometimes they'll throw it up. So they're usually on a full diet, um, which is like stage four um, by their time, their their six-week post-op diet. They can't have pills. Um, and they have to crush their pills or have liquid pill, liquid medications uh, until um, like six weeks post-op because, you know, there's a lot of swelling and we don't want to make like a log jam. We get everybody used to taking a daily vitamin before surgery just because these kids, some some of them are healthy kids who have never been on medicine. So we, you know, get them in the habit of taking a daily multivitamin. And then post-op, they're on two multivitamins a day, a B-complex, um, and the two multivitamins have iron in it, B-complex and uh, vitamin D and calcium. And then uh, we also give them six months of ursodiol to prevent gallstones, and then three months of Prilosec. 
you know, in the last three or four years, there's been like a big marketing for um, all-in-one bariatric vitamins. So we're actually, you know, once they're about three months post-op and vitamin levels are stable, we'll change them over to a a bariatric all-in-one vitamin, which is super easy. It's one vitamin and then they'll take some Tums for calcium and that's it. Unless, you know, they have like some iron deficiency. Some patients do, for whatever reason, um, have a hard time with iron deficiency. And we've had several patients need IV iron. A lot of it is preceded by not taking your vitamins for several months. So they sometimes get themselves into that problem. But we have definitely had patients need, you know, IMB12 or a few infusions of uh, IV iron, but it's not the norm. Most patients are do quite well and they can just take that one all-in-one vitamin if they're willing to pay for it. It's not a prescription. It's on Amazon or through the company. Um, but those who would rather get their prescriptions covered by their insurer will have them on the bigger regimen of the two multivitamin, the B, the iron, that kind of thing. And Amory, you mentioned when they're in the hospital. I'm wondering if you can just speak for a moment about any specialized equipment that might be needed to care for these patients when they're inpatient. Yeah. We, as part of our accreditation, have to demonstrate um, that the hospital is prepared to take care of bariatric patients and their families. So as you can understand, like we're not the only department that sees severely obese patients. In fact, we, at one point, I was working with the safe patient handling department. And uh, we got a list of some of the weights of uh, and BMIs of patients coming to outpatient programs. And I would say every program across the hospital had patients who qualified with high BMIs who weren't necessarily bariatric patients. So it needs to be you know, throughout the hospital. These patients also um, have sometimes bigger family members. So uh, we need to have guest chairs and things like that. So in our clinic, we have a scale that accommodates up to a thousand pounds. We have an exam table that accommodates up to a thousand pounds. And we have like, you know, lots of bariatric seating in our waiting area. Um, And that's across the hospital as well. There's um, bariatric seating in the ER and in radiology, in phlebotomy, in all patients places where patients congregate, because of course you don't want these patients to feel, they already feel other. They already are very conscious of how big they are. And the last thing we want to do is draw attention to it or make them feel unwelcome. And so we have um, bariatric gowns. We have um, toilet supports in, in all of the areas of the hospital. If your toilet is not floor mounted, if it comes straight out of the wall, it has to have a support on it so that, you know, it fits with our bariatric protocol. There's um, the Safe Patient Handling Committee is very active in uh, purchasing beds. The OR table can accommodate, you know, up to a thousand pounds. Radiology has uh, protocols for um, and what their weight limits are. Uh, We can also access um, larger equipment at Brigham and Women's if we need to. So there's really not an area of the hospital that hasn't been looked at in terms of accommodating these patients from you know, the bigger uh, slippers, uh, bigger bedpans and commodes to um, what they wear and where their visitors sit. Can you share one of your most favorite success stories? So one of them was a patient that I only met after his surgery. It was when I first started and he was coming for like a, maybe a three-year post-op check and he's now like maybe 23 and he w- he worked as a tradesman and um, had to get into small areas. 
And he was just so happy that, you know, apparently when he was bigger prior to surgery, the team would say that the other guys on the job would really make fun of him a lot because he couldn't get into these small spaces or, you know, we've, we've had electricians who can't, you know, go up ladders and plumbers who can't get under the sink. And it's devastating for these people. So, cause they just want to be productive and normal and fit in. And so he was so pleased that he could fit in these tiny spaces and do the work that he wanted to do. Um, and so we were having this conversation and I said, you know, you've done really well. Like you, have kept your weight off for, you know, now here we are three or four years post-op. And and he said, well, actually I haven't. Once they're after a year post-op, we see them probably every six months to year. So he hadn't been seen in a year. And he said, I actually haven't kept my weight off. I gained 30 pounds within this past year and then lost it. And he said, you know, I had hurt my knee and I was going out after work with friends for beers and some, you know, fast food. And uh, he hurt his knee, so he wasn't going to the gym. And then he and I said, well, how did you lose it? And he said, honestly, I just went back to what you guys told me and taught me prior to surgery is I cleaned up my diet. I exercised, however, you know, the best that I could with this injury and I lost the weight. And so I thought like I was, you know, proud of the fact that the teaching beforehand had helped this guy get back on track. And, you know, he had to realize it himself that said, I'm on my way to gaining more weight than this if I don't arrest it soon. So that was a point of pride for me, for the team that, you know, we had equipped this kid with something to keep him healthy going forward as an adult. And then the second one is uh, we recently, you know, our accrediting body has kind of opened it up saying that patients who have intellectual disabilities, and even obesity syndrome, such as Prader-Willi, are not excluded from bariatric surgery. Now, we haven't done anybody yet with um, like a genetic form of obesity. We have one, but no Prader-Willi. But anyway, it's a, it's a case-by-case basis. But this was our first. We recently did somebody with an intellectual disability, and she's a, she's a person in her who's an, an adult, but was referred to us because of her provider's faith in Children's Hospital for multidisciplinary care. And we probably have seen her for probably four years prior to her surgery. There was also a language barrier. And we, as a team, prepared this woman so well. And we were all so nervous because, you know, we she had a great support system. But as I said, it was a a um, language barrier. And so I worked with Child Life to get her prepared. She had a we had a social story and um, Child Life worked with her to kind of tour her through pre-op. Um, we did multiple sessions for teaching with an interpreter and really, you know, talked to everyone in her life before. And she was with us for three or four years before we we all agreed that she was ready for surgery. And she did so well. I mean, she did so well. It was just effortless. We thought, oh, you know, she'll probably stay in the hospital a little bit longer because, you know, she's got these challenges. She left, you know, as soon as she was able. And I mean, she was in the hospital for the regular two days and went home. Uh, I got a visiting nurse for her, which we never do. But, you know, I just thought just to kind of make sure that the family was on, you know, was clear about everything. And I mean, she's just done well. I probably talked to her every week just to kind of reinforce some of the things she can and cannot have. But, you know, she's probably only about four or five months out, but lost a good amount of weight. Blood pressure. She's off her blood pressure medications. Um, on her way to being off CPAP, and you know, much more 
energy. And I mean, I just, I couldn't be prouder of the team and the hospital, uh, honestly, from the nurses on the floor to child life and discharge case managers, everybody kind of helped to make it a really great process for her. A great team effort. Yeah, it really was. I was really very thankful that everything came together. Mm -hmm. Emory, your passion is so apparent. Oh, thanks. (laughs) I was was just thinking the same thing. Right. What was it about this program that attracted you to it? If I'm being completely honest, I was coming out of graduate school with two young kids and I wanted something that was part time. And so the 16 hours really attracted me at first. And I all, I had a, a couple offers and I chose bariatric surgery because in my prior life as an RN, I worked in outpatient pulmonary and I grew to love the CF population. I I like chronic illness, you know, I like taking care of chronically ill people. Like I like the social aspect of it. I like the long-term relationship you have with the family. You know, I like working with people who've had a struggle, you know, and trying to help lessen their burden. So that all attracted me to bariatric surgery. But, you know, as 20 plus years as a medical nurse to being a surgical nurse practitioner was a big, it's a big difference, you know, in culture, not better or worse, but much different um, and really kind of cool to have that change. You know, I think it has so many opportunities. You know, there's lots I still want to do um, my project, but also the database that we have. I mean, there's so many things to study on these kids in terms of their weight loss, their five-year outcomes. The there's just it's just a wealth of untapped research um, because the program is fairly new. One thing that we didn't touch on yet, and I know we're running out of time, is the AAP just came out with. Um, new recommendations for the care of patients who have obesity. And it's maybe the first time in like 20 plus years that they, or maybe 15 years that they've revised their recommendations on obesity. And a lot of it before was watch and wait or some nutritional counseling in the pediatrician's office. And now it's much more prescriptive about, you know, if they are this BMI or this percentage, um, they need up to, you know, intensive uh, nutritional counseling in a, in a specified sense or someplace like children's for at least 24 hours mm-hmm. of dietary and exercise counseling. And, and then if they're this size, then they should have medications. And then if they're severely obese, we recommend bariatric surgery. So I am passionate about like getting hopefully the hospital ready for this influx of patients who need comprehensive obesity care, not just surgery. So my my desire and my goal, I think, is to try to make more of a obesity center or weight center for children's. And this might be a pipe dream, but we're trying to work on it and, you know, have a surgical arm and a medical arm and a psych arm and eating disorder arm. And that would be the the goal. But I think we're going to be seeing a lot more pediatricians sending their patients both for obesity management and for bariatric surgery. And I think we need to increase our availability of resources here. So would you say, based on your past experience, as well as your professional opinion, do you see obesity as a disease or do you see it as a a lifestyle that needs to change? Oh, no, it's definitely a disease. Like it's a, it's definitely a disease. They've done twin studies. There's a Swedish study um, of twins and they're identical twins in two different households. Basically the twins ended up the weight that they were going to be, no matter whether they were living in a house that was a higher weight or obese house or a typical house. Like they basically what your genetic code was for weight 
you ended up being no matter who raised you, you know, maybe some slight differences, but they've, you know, they've seen it time and again. And I'm sure you all know people who can eat whatever they want and lots of it and don't gain weight, whereas other people can just look at food and gain weight. And there's definite science behind the fact that there's a genetic component to that. A lot of our patients have multi-generational history of obesity. Uh, It's super interesting and that, you know, there's a lot of science that's still evolving. This has been so eye-opening for me, I have to say, like, you know, you look at obesity, it really is the genetic component, but it's really a multifaceted bariatric surgery. I never looked at it as life-saving, but it truly is life-saving. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And a lot of critics will say, you know, why are you doing this so, so young? Although I haven't heard a lot of critics lately, but it might just be the circles that I hang around in, but they'll say, you know, why are you doing it so, so young? These kids are so young. But if you look at it as like, you are giving them 70 plus years of health rather than dealing with multiple diets and failures until you're 45. And then, you know, having high blood pressure and high cholesterol and bad knees and things like that. And then having the surgery. I mean, it's good whenever you have it, but like if you can avoid developing, predisposing them to certain cancers because of their weight, joint problems, never mind the psychological effects of having obesity until you're in your 40s. That's so true. Yeah. It's a fascinating area to work in. I do miss little kids, I must say, a four-year-old or a baby, because we do deal with a lot of, you know, all teenagers, but I'm going to have to get my toddler fixed sometimes. Be up a 90s. We'll let you get your toddler. Oh, for sure. Well, 90s is my home. That's where I came from. Uh, I was on 80s, you know, in the beginning, and then we changed to 90s. So I I love it there. I love the people there. Well, you're always welcome. Okay, good. (laughs) Anne-Marie, you're so passionate about what you do. And like you said, you're a lifer here at Children's. Yeah. What is it that you want your legacy to be? Part of me wants to think that I'm too young to be thinking about my legacy. But <laughs> like, you know, I'm really not that young. So I think someone who, you know, put patients first and was always compassionate and and treated people with dignity. And I'm passionate about equity and inclusion and just easing people's burden, you know, like, so I don't think like I need a big legacy, but people can remember that I helped or I was, I taught them something or I made things easier. That's, Mm -hmm. that's what I go for, I guess. Mm -hmm. That's so good. But I'm hoping that this podcast also sheds light and helps to inform people and maybe stop some of the the social biases that exist out there against this patient population. And I think through your interview, you've explained it so well from a nursing perspective, from a medical surgical perspective. So I want to thank you for that. And hopefully our listeners will agree. Thank you. Thanks for having me. This podcast is sponsored by the Innovation Digital Health Accelerator, Boston Children's Hospital, with support from the emergency department and our inpatient medicine programs. Until next time, thank you for listening to the Small Talk Podcast.